0: Welcome to the Sermon Podcast feed of Liberty Church Mainline, where we seek to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus for Philadelphia's historic mainline and surrounding communities. Every week, we look again to the story of the Bible, the lavish grace of God revealed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website, Um, LibertyMainline.org. So our
1: our text this morning comes from Luke, chapter sixteen, verses nineteen to thirty-one. It says, "This there was a rich man who who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted. Moreover, who desired to be fed." Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the gospel of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Father, as we, um, as we study your word this morning, I ask that you would send your spirit to illuminate our minds to the truth of your gospel. Give us wisdom, give us insight, give us a firm conviction, and, and more than anything, give us Jesus. Show us our need and our dependency upon him. Show us his saving beauty. Show us his magnificent resurrection for us. In his name we pray. Amen. So as as Matt said, my name is Greg. I'm a a church planting resident at Liberty Harrisburg. It's great to be able to be here with you this morning in worship. And um, I I would love a few moments to talk about this exciting parable, the story that Jesus tells. It's a story about uh, money about greed, about power, about the abuse of power, about hell. It's really all like the good popular sermon topics thrown into one, the ideal sermon for a guest preacher to come talk about and then leave. Um, but I, I do believe that it has some really powerful things to say to us, particularly here in our cultural moment. This is a story ultimately about what happens when people who are obsessed with their own self-love have that self-love run rampant in their lives. It's about what happens when self-love runs rampant. And so we're going to do three things this morning. First, we're going to look at self-love in life. Second, self-love in death. And then third, the solution to self-love. So self-love in life, self-love. Jesus begins the story by describing self-love. Um, First, self-love in life. Jesus begins the story by describing this rich man. So look at verse 19 with me. While giant linen, living sumptuously, that, that word sumptuously means that he feasts all the time. Now, purple in the ancient world was the most expensive color to produce because of the rare sea mussels that were used to create the color purple. Um, like ancient, if we read the book of Numbers, ancient rabbinical prayer shawls were required to have just one strand of purple in them. And this man here is wearing an entire robe full of purple. That's crazy. This man is incredibly wealthy. Jesus is describing this guy in almost comically wealthy terms. The term for fine linen is a term for uh, costly Egyptian imported undergarments, the most delicate delicate, and most expensive fabric possible in the ancient world. This is Jesus describing this guy in terms that would be like me in a modern day kind of context, saying like he had a suit jacket on that was filled, studded with diamonds. He wore his boxer briefs, had, were were sewn with golden yarn. Like, this guy is extra. He is superfluously wealthy. He is over-the-top wealthy. But where this rich man is described as absurdly wealthy, Lazarus, this beggar by the gate, is described as just the opposite. So catch the stark contrast between the rich man and Lazarus. Jesus is describing two ends of the financial spectrum, like, like a billionaire and a beggar. Look at the parallels Jesus draws. While the billionaire feasts every day, Lazarus longs to eat what falls from the rich man's table. While the rich man is covered in purple and fancy-schmancy underwear, Lazarus is covered in ulcers and boils that the dogs come to lick. Yuck, right? Jesus is deliberately painting a picture here of the richest of the rich and the poorest of the poor. And he does so to illustrate the particular sin of the rich man. But what is the sin of the rich man? The sin of the rich man is not that he is wealthy. Being wealthy is not a sin. Jesus doesn't call him out for his wealth, and we shouldn't demonize wealth any more than we should glorify poverty. The passage doesn't say anything about the rich man abusing Lazarus or exploiting his workers or not tithing. No, in the story, Jesus never says the rich man actively harms other people at all. In fact, because this rich man was meant to be an illustration of the Pharisees that Jesus was speaking to, this rich man probably tithed. He was probably in good standing in his religious community. He likely gave a good bit of his money to help the poor. So, so it wasn't the sin of the rich man that he like hated Lazarus or abused him or spit on him or kicked him even actively harmed him in any way. Rather, the sin of the rich man was not active, but passive. It was that day by day, Lazarus sat at the gate of the rich man, and day by day, the rich man stepped over him, ignoring him, too blinded by his own self-love to even see him. That was the sin of the rich man, a self-love that had the rich man living in the warmth of luxury while Lazarus suffered and hungered outside his very door. Now, I want to do a little thought experiment with you. Um, Right now, think of the name of one of the richest people in the world, at least a billionaire. Can you think of a name? Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, someone like that. Okay, now think of the name of one of the poorest people in the world at least homeless. If you're like me, not many names come to mind. We live in a world where the kingdom of this world pushes at every turn the names of the wealthy and tries to get us at every turn to forget that the poor even exist. Now, now eyes back to the parable. Notice what Jesus does in the parable. He flips the script. He gives the poor man a name in the parable, while the rich man goes the entire parable remaining nameless. In fact, Lazarus is the only character in any parable that Jesus tells in the New Testament who has a name. Throughout the parables in the New Testament, we read of farmers, shepherds, rich men, widows, blue-collar workers, judges, servants, and more. But only here in any of the parables does Jesus give anyone a name, and it's Lazarus. Lazarus isn't even the main character in this parable. He doesn't even have a speaking part. He doesn't say a sentence in the entire parable. He's not the main character. The rich man is. The main character is him. He who, is in, he who this parable is about is the rich man, and yet Jesus calls Lazarus by name while the rich man remains nameless. Why do you think that is? I think it's probably... Because Jesus wants to remind us that his kingdom doesn't operate like the kingdom of this world. Those with influence and fame in our world today are not necessarily those who hold influence and fame in the kingdom of Jesus. The rich man for all his fancy living, lavish lifestyle and expensive underwear is nobody in the kingdom of God. While Lazarus, the ulcer-covered beggar at the gate is carried by angels and seated with Abraham. Which means a few things. It means first that if you're here this morning and you feel like a Lazarus, like this world has passed you by, like you're an outcast, like you've been forgotten or stepped over by the kingdom of this world, It means that no matter matter how many people don't know your name, your Savior in heaven does. He knows the name of Lazarus and names him in the parable, and he knows your name and loves you and cares about you. It it also means that we should take a warning from the rich man and beware of self-love beware of trying to be impressive in this life. Beware of making a name for yourself or trying to leave a legacy. Beware of buying into the American dream's definition of success. Beware of what version of the good life you buy into. Those who have achieved success, fame, and admiration in this life have often forfeited it in eternity. What Jesus is saying in this parable is something that is well, if you're like me, it's absolutely terrifying. Namely, that our attitude toward the poor in this life reveals something about the state of our soul and our eternal destiny. And again, if you're like me, I'm not an expert in many things, but I'm a professional. I'm extremely adept at coming up with all sorts of like theological rationale pious sounding justifications and spiritually veiled excuses for ignoring some of Jesus' most straightforward and basic commands about how I ought to use my money and treat the poor. One of the clearest ways to tell if you're following Jesus is to look at your budget. Where we spend our money reveals our heart's greatest loves. From the overflow of the heart, the wallet spends. So what do you spend your money on? I'm not here to berate you about that. That's Matt's job. But what do you spend your money on? There is no better indicator of what you love than what you spend your money on when you have a little bit extra. This rich man loves himself more than he loves God, and so every day he steps over Lazarus and feasts while Lazarus starves. That's self-love in life. Let's take a look now at self-love and death. As Jesus continues this parable, both these men die. Lazarus is carried away by angels to Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom. This is a way of describing the heaven that exists now, which is temporary until the resurrection. And the rich man is sent to Hades, which is the Jewish underworld. And now, this is a parable, right? And so Jesus' descriptions of what Hades is like are likely uh, metaphorical. Hades is probably not a physical place with literal flames that burn your literal flesh, um, nor is there like a literal chasm across which you can like call out and talk to the people on the other side. Jesus adds features and uses literary devices to communicate true realities about the afterlife, but it is a parable. It's not a literal description of what Hades is like. What these things do tell us about Hades is that it is a terrible place of agony from which there is no escape. Now, um, if you're like me, and I'll admit this, like, like anybody, I am troubled by the idea of hell. It bothers me. I haven't come up with a, a fitting solution to it all, and it still is, is a hard piece of the puzzle to fit into like, my Christian life. Agony for all of eternity with no hope of escape Honestly, sounds a bit harsh and over the top. But often I think that we mischaracterize hell as like a, a lake of fire where Satan and his minions just torment people endlessly for ages and these people want to escape but they can't. A sort of eternal Guantanamo Bay full of repentant people. Um, like an, an infinite human barbecue pit. But, but that's not the Bible's idea of Hell. The Bible does think hell is a very real place, but it's not an underground torture chamber run by Satan, and it's not filled with repentant people who want out. In fact, notice this. Look at the text. The rich man doesn't even want to escape. The rich man is in agony, yes, but he's far from repentance. He begs for water to cool his tongue, but he doesn't ask to come sit by Abraham's side with Lazarus. The rich man never asks even to leave Hades because, I think... He doesn't want to. Hell is less of a dungeon that God locks from the outside and more of a world that we create for ourselves that we lock from the inside. Hell is not a place where our freedom is taken away. It's a place where our freedom is given to the uttermost. The people in hell experience freedom to the uttermost. They finally get freedom to be and act as their deepest desires really want. That is hell. Hell is about freedom from God. It's about God giving the people the freedom to sin and live in the self-love that they want to. So C.S. Lewis writes about this, and he says, there are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. Right, hell is a place where God eternally says to the people who are in it, fine, you know best. Go and live how you please. And in a sense, this rich man was in hell long before he even died. We see this directly in the passage with the rich man. The sin of the rich man was a self-love that manifested itself in luxurious living while Lazarus suffered. And if you notice, the rich man doesn't become any less selfish when he enters hell. In fact, just the opposite. So look at verse 23. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. You notice what the rich man did? He asks Abraham to tell Lazarus, go get me some water. Th- this man is in Hades, burning in the fire, and still thinks Lazarus is just a beggar that he can order around. Fetch me some water, he says. This man doesn't want out of hell. He doesn't want to worship God. He doesn't want to repent. He still just wants to order Lazarus around like a servant boy. This rich man's self-love is unrestrained and is consuming him even in the afterlife. Lazarus is chilling with one of the most important dudes in history, Abraham, and, and the rich man still thinks nothing of him. He's no one to him. The next request of the rich man is almost equally absurd. So look at verse 27. He answers, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Now, once again, the rich man still thinks he can order Lazarus around. But at a first glance, this seems like a pretty selfless desire, a selfless wish. Right? Like, I mean, uh, wanting his brothers to not experience the same agony that he is in seems like not a bad thing to want. But look closer at the text. First, notice what the rich man does not say. The rich man does not say, like, warn them so that they will repent and turn to God. Right? He doesn't love God and doesn't want his brothers to either. He just wants them to avoid suffering. And second, his desire to have his brothers warned implies what? It implies that if only he had been warned, he wouldn't be in this situation. Do you see how implicitly this just subtly shifts the blame back onto the God? Like, had I been given the right information, the right evidence, the right facts and figures, I wouldn't be in this situation. So go tell my brothers what you never told me so that they will make an informed decision. Because the fault is God's, not mine, that I wasn't properly informed. And how does Abraham respond to this accusation? He responds like any person who knows their Bibles. He says in verse 29, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. The phrase Moses and the prophets was an idiom for the entire Old Testament. Essentially, Abraham responds and says to the rich man, like you and they have all the evidence you need in the word of God. Now this doesn't satisfy the rich man, so he makes an even further excuse. In verse 30, he says, no, Father Abraham, But if someone from the dead goes to them, they'll repent. Abraham said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not even be convinced if someone rises from the dead. Namely, if they're not persuaded by the word of God, no number of miracles, not even a resurrection, which not to spoil the ending of Luke, but that happens, will even convince their hearts that are hell-bent on selfishly loving themselves. Now, maybe you're hearing this parable, and once again, you feel like Lazarus. More like Lazarus than the rich man. Stepped over, stepped on by a million different people that don't even seem to see you. What I believe that Jesus wants to tell you through this parable this morning is this. That no matter how invisible you may seem to the world, you are not to the God who created it. The God who created the world, Jesus Christ, longs to give you purpose, meaning, and fulfillment even now. The king of the universe sees you, knows your name, and wants to give you significance, and he loves you. And so if you are like Lazarus this morning, look to Jesus. Maybe you're more like the rich man in the parable than Lazarus. Maybe your life is marked more by stepping over those who have less than you do than it is by being stepped over. To you, I think Jesus wants to say this and give you uh, gently this warning. If you want to know the state of your soul, you need to look no further than your attitude towards those poorer than you. If you want to know the state of your soul, you need to look no further than your attitude toward those poorer than you. Now it'd be easy for me to end this sermon and say something like, Now go be better at loving the poor. Don't be like the rich man, but be like Jesus commands. But if I did that, I don't think it would work. Like I don't think fear of hell is a strong enough motivator to get us to actually love the poor in the way that Jesus wants us to. I don't think fear, man, that if we're just warned, we'll act differently, that all we need is the right motivation, a spiritualized TED talk, and now we can go love the poor better. I think we need something more powerful, right? The only thing that is going to truly change our hearts and enable us to love our neighbors well, I believe, is looking once again at Jesus. So whether you are Lazarus or the rich man, this first step this morning is the same. Look to Jesus, the Jesus who left the glories of heaven and came to earth, much less like the billionaire and more like the beggar. Not as a rich man, but as a homeless refugee child. The God of the universe was, like Lazarus and like many of us, stepped over every day by the religious PhDs of his time. He was forsaken by his friends and his family, He died a criminal's death on a cross. This is the rabbi who we follow, who left the glories of heaven to come identify with us, the lowly. And we will never be able to love our neighbors well until we grasp first and foremost just how much we have been loved by him, the king of the universe, who left his home in glory and came to reside among us, the lowly. So church, may you go out into the world this week with the confidence that Jesus knows your name. May you go out with a determination to follow Jesus and put every ounce of your own self-love to death. And may you go trusting that as you do, the God of the ages through Jesus Christ is with you every step of the way. Will you pray with me? Father, as we prepare even now to come feast at your table, would you remind us anew of what you have done for us in Jesus Christ? Would you remind us that we were once beggars at your gate and you invited us inside? That the supper that we are about to eat and drink signifies to us, reminds us of the of the supper of the lamb that is to come when we will feast in heaven, invited into the wedding. Not those who have earned our place, but those who by your grace approach your throne. Remind us of what Jesus has done for us. It's in his name and for his sake we pray. Amen.
0: Hey, thanks for listening. We hope that either through or in spite of the human messenger, you heard the gracious invitation of God to the abundant life of love and service found in the transforming person and work of Jesus. If you've been encouraged by this podcast, please take a moment to rate, review, or subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, check us out at libertymainline.org.